So uh, this being the first day of the month of Nisan, we have, as you've heard in the sermonette, less than two weeks to go before the Passover is with us. You might say there is two weeks in which we are able to get all of our deleavening done. As we approach the Passover and the days of unleavened bread again, what is it that we're hoping to learn? It's easy to evaluate the days of, in terms of the changes we need to make in our lives or the instances where we've been able to avoid leaven during that week. Sometimes we remember the days for the leaven we've found during the week and the places we never thought there was leaven in our homes. And probably each of us can recount stories of that. But today I'd like to look at a larger picture of why those changes need to be made. Why the changes that are mandated by the Passover and unleavened bread need to be made in our life. In so doing, we're going to make a connection between the first recorded Passover, recorded in the book of Exodus, and the Passover recorded or the last recorded Passover of Jesus with his disciples, and the lessons that remain from those that are highly applicable to us today. There is a lesson in the first Passover recorded in the book of Exodus. It's introduced to us the very first time that Moses meets with the Pharaoh. We find it in chapter 5, so if you'd like to turn to chapter 5, I can give you a little bit of a background beforehand. Remember that Moses had been born of the Hebrews, but had been brought up in Pharaoh's house. And because he killed an Egyptian, he had to flee. Flee into the wilderness and ended up serving the Jethro the Midianite as a shepherd marrying one of his daughters spent 40 years in the wilderness and then in chapter 3 we find the eternal appearing to Moses instructing him to go back to Egypt and to bring the people of Israel his own people out of Egypt and of course we have quite a bit of detail of the interaction between Moses and the eternal in that chapter He goes back, chapter 4, his brother Aaron meets him on the way, and Aaron is also involved in this challenge of appearing before Pharaoh and receiving the release of the children of Israel. Chapter 5 is the first occasion on which Moses appears before Pharaoh. It's instructive to see how the lesson, this lesson changes over the events recorded culminating with the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea, chapter 14 and chapter 15. So this is a lesson that plays out over the next nine chapters, ten chapters. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Having returned to Egypt, it said afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the eternal God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. 
So a fairly bold demand to make, and it was made, uh, you might say, with a certain amount of boldness. There's no equivocation here on uh, the part of Moses and Aaron. And, of course, the response from Pharaoh was equally robust, straight to the point. Pharaoh said, Who is the Eternal that I should obey his voice? To let Israel go. I do not know the Eternal. And nor am I going to let Israel go. Sorry, fellas, you got the wrong guy here. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the eternal our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. Pharaoh responded to Moses and Aaron's request to let the people go into the wilderness with that bold demand, who is the eternal that I should obey? Dr. Meredith a couple of weeks ago spoke about who is Jesus Christ? Who is this being that we should be obeying? Pharaoh went on from there saying, I do not know the eternal nor will I let Israel go. The result of the request, of course, was an intensification of the work that the Israelites had to have, undertake. Pharaoh's assessment of the situation is, these people have got too much time on their hands to think about things they should not be thinking about. Therefore, the resolution is more work. Very important for us to understand. But look at the comment that he makes here in this verse, verse 4. Who is the eternal that I should let him go? I do not know him. That last statement of Pharaoh's, knowing who is the eternal, is an idea that resonates throughout the continuing account of the Exodus. It resonates in the Passover that Jesus Christ kept with his disciples. And it must resonate in our lives if we are going to be successful in our keeping of the Passover and building that relationship that we must have with Jesus Christ and with the Father. We must know who is the eternal. Without question. In fact, chapter 5 sets up a number of constituencies who did not know the eternal. And what happens over the next few chapters leading up to the Passover in chapter 12 and then the eventual crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14 and chapter 15, the Song of Moses, People come to learn something in a very important way. So there are a number of constituencies. Obviously, the most visible is Pharaoh himself. Who are the others? Well, Israel, 
had to come to know the eternal. Very important. We quickly find out that after they left Pharaoh, the Israelites had no great knowledge of the eternal. The only thing they had knowledge of was the amount of work they had to do. And that was the limit of their understanding. The Israelites were in the same state of not knowing the eternal. When they responded to Moses because Pharaoh had imposed extra burdens on them, the leaders of Israel turned on Moses and Aaron, and their reaction indicated that they had no understanding of this very point. They had no real knowledge of who the Eternal was. Slide down, chapter 5, to verse 15. The officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your, your, your servants? Why are you making us now collect the straw and make the same number of bricks? You've doubled our work. Whatever it was. Verse 16, there is no straw given to your servants, and you say, make brick. Indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. What did Pharaoh say? You're idle. You've got too much time to think. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the eternal. Therefore, go and work. Get on with the job you've been given. Be satisfied with your own lot in life. The officers of verse 19, the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. And as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the eternal judge look on you and judge, because you've made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're going to destroy us. They had no concept of who the eternal was and what his purpose was. They saw life in terms of their daily struggle. The number of bricks that had to be produced and the amount of hours of light in the day in which to do that. So Israel, as a group of people, had no knowledge of the eternal. Moses is the third constituency I'd like to mention to you. Did Moses really know the eternal? Surprising as it may be, Moses always had a problem with the responsibility that was given to him by the eternal of the burning bush. He was always trying to delegate it or pass it off to somebody else. There's someone better to do it than I am. His preference would have been to be back in the desert with the sheep, unaffected by taking care of the children of Israel. Life's so much simpler. The day comes and goes. And I don't have to do anything. I don't have to be responsible in any way. The Eternal assured him 
that by a strong arm or a strong hand, Israel was to be brought out of Egypt. He was given an insight into what the power of the eternal was able to accomplish. An opportunity, you might say, to have a head start in getting to know the eternal. And so we could come down to uh, verse 22 of chapter 5. And here's Moses. It gives a snapshot, you might say, of Moses. Verse 22. Moses returned to the eternal and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on us, this people? Here you make this great promise of what you're going to accomplish, and all we get is trouble. Why is it you've sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. And carrying on into chapter 6, the Eternal responded. He said, the Eternal said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of Israel. And Moses is instructed by the Eternal, once again reinforcing who the Eternal was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his God Almighty. He said in verse 3, But by my name, the Eternal, I was not known to them. And I've established my covenant And I've had all of these promises, and these are going to be fulfilled. He said in verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Eternal. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is a reality. This is going to happen. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know. Ah. So here's Moses standing before the eternal being told, then you shall know that I am the eternal your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, of course, it wasn't just Moses who was to learn, and it wasn't just Moses and Aaron. The knowing the you that is used here is second person plural, so it's referring to the Israelites as well. But Moses had some learning to do. One of the great lessons we learn is that Moses really learned it. In a powerful manner. The fourth constituency, of course, were the Egyptians. The Egyptian people have been complicit with Pharaoh in the enslavement of the Israelites. It wasn't something that Pharaoh did by himself. The Egyptians were very happy to have someone do this. They had been implicit in the attempts at infanticide that had occurred starting in chapter 1. Like most people who hold power, they had a vested interest in maintaining that power. 
no matter how little it was. You go around the world and you see people who have power. The one thing they want to do is hold on to it. They hold power and influence over a subject people. I'm going to Kenya. This is the story of Kenya. Which tribe is in charge? And if another tribe could possibly become in charge, the tribe that has the power does everything it can to keep that power. It's a human problem. And so they wanted to uh, maintain this influence over a subject people. Pharaoh understood this relationship and implicated the Egyptian people when he admitted to Moses in chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 27, you might like make a note of it and refer to it later. But in chapter 9, 27, the Pharaoh said to Moses, he said, The eternal is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. We are the ones out of line. Earlier in chapter 9, Moses had recorded the attitude of the Egyptians to the miracles of the plagues. Some of the Egyptians were smart. They saw what was happening, and they realized, without spending too much time thinking about it, which was the winning side. Some had learned something about the eternal, while others had stubbornly and in a recalcitrant manner, just like Pharaoh, objected to coming to know the eternal. You can read chapter 9, verse 20. We find that some of the Egyptians reacted to the warning given by Moses, indicated that they had come to have some level of knowledge about the eternal. And so in verse 20 and 21 it said, He who feared the word of the eternal. So not necessarily knowledge, but certainly a fear of the eternal had entered into an element of the Egyptian people. He who feared the word of the eternal among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. Why? To avoid the plague of a hail and the destruction that would bring upon the livestock. But the person who had no interest in this, did not regard the word of the eternal, left his servants and his livestock in the field to their own destruction and hurt. So Egyptians were a fourth constituency. The fifth constituency might be a surprise. Moses was instructed that the events being played out before his eyes were not just for those who experienced it. This was not just an undertaking for the benefit of the people who lived there and then. It was a lesson for all future generations of which you and I are part. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The Eternal said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. 
and the hearts of the servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. And you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know what? That I am the eternal. In other words, all generations were to come to know that the eternal is Lord. This wasn't a one-off thing. This is to be part of our thinking. All generations, the little ones who are sleeping on the floor at the present time, all the little ones, the little larger ones who are sitting there with books or crayons at the present time, and all the way up to those of us with gray hair or not so much gray hair because we've lost it all, are to come to know this lesson in a very profound way. It's to be a continuing lesson for all the people of God, irrespective of their circumstances or timing. All humanity needs to come to understand this lesson. The question for you and me is will the Passover and the days of unleavened bread enable each one of us to come to know the eternal better? Is that what it's about? All right, so we've looked at these five constituencies, Pharaoh, Moses, the Israelites, the Egyptians, and, for want of a better term, us. Had to come to know that the eternal is God. How did the eternal go about bringing this knowledge to the forefront of the people? Well, let's start with the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, of course, was a demigod. And, of course, the eternal's plan to help Pharaoh come to know him was to show Pharaoh that he was no more than a human being. He was not the great person that he thought he was. Interesting comment for you about the role of a pharaoh. The chief responsibility of the pharaoh was to maintain ma'at. That's spelled in English M or capital M, A apostrophe, A-T. And it's either pronounced as mayet or mayat, depending on, I guess, which side of the Atlantic you came from. But mayat or mayat was the goddess of universal harmony. The role of the pharaoh was to maintain harmony in the nation of Egypt, to suppress chaos, keep these things down. The goddess Mayet was thought to work her will through the pharaoh. But it was up to the individual pharaoh, the individual ruler, to interpret the goddess or the goddess's will correctly and then to act on it. So he had a role. He had a role as being a representative of a god or a goddess of his point. 
And so Pharaoh, as his custom was, we find in chapter 7 and verse 14, went out to the Nile. And Moses was sent to meet him at the Nile. And of course we change with the very first plague, we find the rivers of uh, Egypt changed to blood, etc. We then move on into the second plague. The magicians of Egypt were able to do something similar to what Moses and Aaron had done. And so another plague came along, the frogs. But on this occasion, while the the magicians of Egypt could do something about bringing frogs out of where the frogs came from, they weren't able to do anything about removing them. And so the, the pharaoh found himself in a state that a pharaoh shouldn't find himself in, unable to control the chaos. Just think of what it would be like. Everywhere you went, there were frogs. You go to climb into bed and there are frogs there already. It doesn't bear too much time thinking about as the chaos that would have occurred. And of course, the magicians of Pharaoh weren't able to do anything about it. Pharaoh had lost control in a very powerful way. And so we find in chapter 8 that there is a balance of power change taking place. Instead of Moses having to implore Pharaoh to let the people go and Pharaoh dismissing them from his presence saying, back to work, now we have the situation where the Pharaoh is pleading with Moses and Aaron to do something about this problem. And so there's a balance of power shift shifting here between Pharaoh and Moses and so forth. And so we find in chapter 8, verse 8, that Pharaoh pleads with Moses. He said, plea with the eternal to remove frogs from me and my people. And so for once he is open to sacrificing. But he said, not in the wilderness. All right, so... Verse 9, Moses lets Pharaoh appear to be in control. We're going to play this out a little further. This isn't going to happen after the second plague, as we'll see in due course. And so Moses said, okay, you want the frogs removed? You set a time. You establish the time you want this changed. And we will ask the eternal to do it. And so Moses, Pharaoh, well, yeah, right, I'm still in control. I set the time. But of course the eternal was able to do it. Pharaoh could not do it. Pharaoh's magician could not do it. We have already read one of the scriptures about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And I'd like to make a comment on this. It's really enough for an, another study of its own. But people read the aspect of the eternal hardening Pharaoh's heart. And of course the idea that people take from that is that Pharaoh had no choice in this matter. And that an unfair God mercilessly controlled him against his will. That is not the case. Now one of the problems we face in English that 
it hides a play upon words that exist in the Hebrews. And we don't have time to deal with that today. But let's establish one thing very first, clearly. Pharaoh hardened his heart in the first instance. Pharaoh called the name of a game. And the Eternal said, you want to play that game? I can play it too. And I will deconstruct you as the controller of chaos in a very, very powerful way. And so we find that uh, the Egyptian people became hardened as well and so forth. Bear that in mind when you're reading about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. He started the game. He chose the path to walk, hardening his heart against the eternal. The eternal said, that's not a good way to go because I'm going to win in a very powerful way. We were in chapter 8 and verse 21. We find that the plague of the murin of cattle occurs between verses 21 and 28. And we find that Pharaoh once again is equivocating and telling them, go and sacrifice with the land. No wilderness, no going into the wilderness, no one crosses the border. You're going to remain under my control. And of course Moses has to tell him, it's not right to do this in the land of Egypt because it would be a pollution to the Egyptians. And they have to go into the wilderness. And so eventually the uh, Pharaoh acquiesces and say, well, yeah, go into the wilderness, but not very far. Let my soldiers keep an eye on you. And uh, he's starting to align his view with Moses. The seventh plague in chapter 9 brings a major concession. Chapter 9 and verse 13. The Eternal said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. You would almost get the situation where the Pharaoh sees Moses and Aaron coming and he knows exactly what they're going to say. He said, At this time I'll send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. You're going to learn a lesson, Pharaoh. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. I'm playing nice because I have it within my power to destroy you totally. But I want you to learn a lesson. He said, but indeed for this purpose, verse 16, indeed for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The gospel is being preached. And poor old Pharaoh is part and parcel of it. Verse 17, as yet you exalt yourself against my people, but you will not let them go. Tomorrow, about this time, I'll cause heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. They don't have hailstorms. They don't have to get insurance on their roofs for hail damage. 
as people in Charlotte, North Carolina might. It's a different world, a different climate. Verse 19. God was playing nice. He said, therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every life, every every animal which is found in the field is not brought home. And they will die. And so we read in verse 20 already, we've read verse 20, those who feared the word of the eternal among the servants of Pharaoh, they got their servants and their livestock into the house, into the barns as quickly as they possibly could. But those who had no regard for the word of the eternal suffered the consequences. The upshot of it, verse 27, Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The eternal is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the eternal that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go. You may stay no longer. So we come at point, the point at the end of chapter 9 to a place where Pharaoh is prepared to make three concessions. The eternal is right. I and my people are in the wrong. We're out of line with the eternal. Plead, thirdly, there's a third concession, plead so that I can let you go. You may stay no longer. All right, so the hail finished. Cleaned up. And a new bright day dawned, right? And people think, ah, well, that's over. We're back to normal. Pharaoh still wants to maintain control. Chapter 10 and verse 8. Because now it comes down to a matter of barter. Who is going to go? Pharaoh once again is bent on mischief by saying the children have got to stay in the land. Now what was the last recorded thing you remember happening in terms of children at the hands of Pharaoh? Wasn't it infanticide where the male children had to be slain? And now he's saying, oh yes, you can go into the wilderness, but your children have got to stay here. Moses, of course, responded very clearly that no, our religion involves the men, women, and children. So he was pointing out to Pharaoh that God would be wronged by leaving the woman and the children behind. And he makes abundantly clear in verse 10 that everything except, Pharaoh tries to make it well, then everything except flocks and herds. And of course Moses has to tell him, no, flocks and herds go. And by the way, the eternal expects you to provide us with the livestock for the sacrifices as well. So Pharaoh finds himself not only losing his slaves, but also losing his choice livestock. It's getting too much for Pharaoh. And of course, it culminated at the end of that chapter in a death threat. 
because Pharaoh's power was being so severely eroded and challenged. In verse 28, Pharaoh said to, said to Moses, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you will die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I'll never see your face again. And so we find he's left. He leaves. What does it mean then that Pharaoh had to come to know the eternal? We find Pharaoh making a number of comments as we go along through the account. Chapter 8, verses 8. Pharaoh asks Moses, Entreat the eternal that you may take the frogs away from my, me and my people, and I'll let you go. Obviously, he came to realize, yes, this is a being of some power that we have not reckoned with before. But give us enough time, we'll solve the matter. Chapter 8, verse 18. We're talking about the lice, the plague of lice on this occasion. Verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. What did they know? Here was something that was outside their control. This was something that we cannot cope with ourselves. Verse 22. Moses was told that today the land of Goshen will be set apart, where my people dwell. No swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know. Now, hold on. We're starting to divide up the land of Egypt. The Pharaoh was supposed to be able to control, supposed to be the one who could control chaos or order in Egypt. And now Moses was telling him that the eternal is going to divide up the land of Egypt and keep peace and harmony in this area of Goshen while all chaos breaks loose in the rest of the land. For what purpose? Verse 22, that you may know that I am the eternal in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall be. And so uh, we've, we've already read chapter 9 and verse 16, where Pharaoh is told by Moses, indeed for this person I raised, purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name shall be declared in all the earth. Verse 17, he said, as yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. So while there was a certain understanding developing about the power of the eternal, Pharaoh was still setting himself up against this being and not acceding to the eternal's demands. Moses said, Moses told Pharaoh, in fact, that the eternal had power in one plague to destroy all of Egypt. You have seen nothing yet 
the fame of the eternal was to go throughout the whole world. And you scroll through a few books further until the book of Joshua and you read what the people of Jericho feared is what they'd heard from Egypt. What had happened to Pharaoh. Forty years later, a generation or so later, people still remembered it. And they were in fear of these people because of their God. Pharaoh was in his own way a foil for the expression of divine power. Divine power was being exercised in such a way that the whole world was to come to know. So we ask ourselves, what does it mean for Pharaoh to know the eternal? He started off, he opened the gambit by saying, Who is the eternal that I should obey his voice? I do not know the eternal. Nor will I let Israel go. Get back to work. Very clearly the pace. We find Moses conducting various, or introducing various plagues. And of course, he tries to use the magicians to counter them. The blood, chapter 7, verse 17. But eventually gets down to the point in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 31 and 32, where Pharaoh, after the death of the firstborn, on that night of the Passover, calls for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the eternal, as you said, and take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone and bless me also. That's rather interesting because the Bible at times is very sparse in what it says. Philo of Egypt, who was a contemporary of Jesus Christ and the apostles, wrote about this particular occasion, and he talked about how the Pharaoh sent his messengers to call Moses and Aaron in the wee hours of the morning after the death of the firstborn. And Moses and Aaron peeked out from behind the curtains of their house. And they said, we're not coming out. We're staying here until the morning. Tell the Pharaoh we'll see him then, so to speak. Because the Eternal said, you want to go out of your house until the morning. The Pharaoh was playing second fiddle to the Eternal. Probably second fiddle is hardly the appropriate term. He was in the back room as a backup for the orchestra if necessary. We come to the point in chapter 12 where Pharaoh acknowledges defeat. He is beaten in a fight, but there is no acceptance of the eternal. He has, you might say, a very physical level of knowledge of the eternal. He can do things I can't do. I better do what he asked me to do. But there was no acceptance of the eternal. What about for Israel? Chapter 4 and verse 5, Moses was told that they may believe that the eternal God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. This is what it's about. This is about family. The God of the patriarchs has appeared. 
chapter 6 and verse 7, the eternal tells them, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the eternal your God who brings you out from under the burdens of Egypt, of the Egyptians. If you read what the eternal says here in chapter 6, the knowledge that Israel came to of the eternal was also qualified. Here is the one who can help us in our physical problems. They didn't see the enormity of what was really happening. And so we come down to chapter 14 and the Red Sea, after the Egyptian army had been destroyed in the Red Sea. It said, the eternal saved Israel. This is verse 30 and 31 of chapter 14. The eternal saved Israel in that day out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of the Egyptians rather. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Eternal and believed the Eternal and his servant Moses. They came to fear the Eternal. And you know how long that lasted? You turn over a couple of pages and there's no fear left. There wasn't anything really great in terms of that fear. They never really came to understand and know the eternal in a great way. There was fear and there was belief, but no sign of them knowing the eternal and seeking to create a great relationship with him. What about for the Egyptians? Exodus 7 and verse 5 We're told that the Egyptians were going to know that I am the Eternal when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Certainly some of them heeded. We've already read chapter 9 and verse 20 and the way in which they heard the next plague coming and they responded. Chapter 12, verses 33 through 36. Now that the death of the firstborn has occurred... The Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. If this carries on, who's going to be left in the land of Egypt? So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up and their clothes on their shoulders. And I would say, we have to say, Mr. Dumas, they hadn't even put the egg and onion in it yet either. <laughs> now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses and they'd asked the Egyptians, asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Eternal had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. The end result of coming to know the eternal. If an Egyptian saw an Israelite coming, it's almost as though they gave them the coat off their back. Be nice to me. It was almost a matter of fear, once again, of how do I help you? How do I help you get out of here so that our life can return to normal? 
because life won't be normal as long as you're here. There's no real knowing of the eternal. A fear of the eternal, yes, but no knowing of the eternal. So what about us? That's where we come in, isn't it? But before we go there, let's just deal with another aspect of the book of Exodus. The question is, why so many plagues? The harshness and the severity of the plagues were a crucial aspect. They were, in many cases, natural events. And, of course, people today want to try and work out how did these things occur. Because, you see, people today don't know the eternal. They don't know the power of the eternal. They see it in all, all as a natural, naturalistic way. And so people today want to account for all the plagues of Egypt as a result of an ex- explosion of a volcano on the island of Santorini in the Aegean Sea. And they try and place it, they try and reason all of the plagues of Egypt around that. And there's some fascinating reasoning that they come to. But it's all bunkum. It's of no value whatsoever because it's not natural. And that was one of the important things that was being dealt with here in terms of this. The natural order is God-given. The life that we have, the beautiful blue sky that we might have from time to time, the beautiful blossoms that we've experienced this spring, all of these things is God-given. And the eternal is able to use those things for a specific purpose. Now, the ten plagues that were given is not a casual or accidental number. There are not just ten because Pharaoh capitulated. There were ten because that was the way the eternal intended it to be. Because ten is very critical in terms of the creation. Some of the Jewish rabbis noted that there were ten acts of creation between Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, and verse 26. And what you have in the plagues of Egypt is literally the undoing of those creative acts in sight of the Egyptians. Bear in mind that the creative acts of Genesis chapter 1 changed chaos into order. And the Eternal is showing the Pharaoh and all who would accept, including you and me, that he has the power, and only he has the power, to reverse that process and turn order into chaos, if that's what it's going to take to get you to come to understand who I am. And so what happened in Egypt wasn't just a coincidence that he, Pharaoh, capitulated at number 10. That was the way the Eternal wanted it to be, to teach the Egyptians something about who he was and the nature of his power. Bear in mind, 
that Pharaoh was supposed to be the one who controlled the chaos. But the Eternal made it abundantly clear to him, you have no control compared with me. Reminds me of something I read very recently. Where scientists or scientists got together and said, well, we can dispense with God. We don't need God anymore. And so a scientist went up to God and said, God, you can go away and retire and get, get, get out of our perspective. Perspective. Get lost. We don't need you anymore. And uh, the scientist said, well, we can clone human beings. We can make human beings. And the Eternal said, fine. Let us see who can make a human being. And so the scientist said, oh, oh, that's easy. And he reached down and picked up a hand of dust. He said, the eternal says, no, you create your own dust. <laughs> we take God, we take the eternal too lightly. We don't understand his power, his greatness, his norm- enormity. The story of the Exodus that we have looked at here today is really about the God of Israel versus the Pharaoh. It's a type of what is taking place in this world. What is the spirit that controls this world? Mr. Weston's telecast this morning. People follow like instinctive sheep to their death having grown up in a sheep farming country, the slaughterhouses where they have the sheep, the sheep are slain, they have what is called a Judas sheep who knows the ropes. And when they want to lead the pen, the sheep from the pen into the slaughterhouse itself, the Judas sheep leads them in and they just follow to their slaughter. And of course, when the Judas sheep gets in there, he's marked in such a way, they open a gate for him and he goes back out into the pen to wait for the next lot of sheep to lead in. Sheep follow. As Mr. Weston was saying this morning, they follow the God of this world. Do we? You see, what we've read here in Exodus chapters 5 through 14, does not stay there. When all said and done, we've already read how that God had raised up Pharaoh to make his name known throughout the whole world. Oh yes, the people of Jericho understood it. They understood it, appreciated that. But the lesson was not just for the Egyptians or the Israelites who lived then. Eventually, All humanity must come to recognize and know who is the eternal. They've got to learn the same lesson as Pharaoh. And they've got to learn it more effectively. It's got to be internalized. It's got to be part and parcel of their thinking. Rather than simply the solution to a problem. The book of Ezekiel is a remarkable book. We understand it very clearly as being an end-time prophecy. One of the interesting aspects of a book that a widow once pointed out to me, 
was the fact that it contains a statement which is reiterated time after time. In fact, if you want to know how many times, in the first 40 chapters of the book of Ezekiel, it says, and they shall know that I am the eternal 63 times. So that's over one and a half times a chapter. You think it is a focus of a book of Ezekiel? Yes, it is. And it's just in the first 40 chapters, because the next eight chapters of uh, Ezekiel, they know the eternal. It's a fact, because the land is resettled and a new temple is built, and the people worship the eternal. Coming to know that the eternal is God is part and parcel of the work that we have to do today. It's part of the gospel message that we have to proclaim to this world in a very powerful way. So in the first 40 chapters, all of the chapters that predate the establishment of the kingdom of God, we find this statement, and they shall know that I am the eternal. And that is applied to Israel. It is applied to the Gentiles. It is applied to the nations. In other words, there are no exceptions. All humanity has to come to know. So Ezekiel is picking up from what Moses was inspired to write in the book of Exodus. Enlarging the picture from just Israel and Egypt and a pharaoh, a recalcitrant pharaoh, not willing to let the people of Israel go, to the fact where all humanity has to come to understand it. And so you can look at Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 1. And of course, this is a specific reference to Israel itself on this occasion, but we find the same thing in, in other chapters. Chapter one, uh, chapter 6 and verse 1 of the book of Ezekiel. And the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them, the governments of Israel. Verse 6, verse 7, rather. He talked about the problems that were coming upon Israel. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am the eternal. that it's going to bring about the death of people once again before they come to recognize it. Verse 10. And they shall know that I am the eternal. I have not said it in vain, but I'll bring this calamity upon them. What does it take for humanity to come to realize that the eternal, or come to know the eternal? Great verse in chapter 39, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, he said, So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the eternal, the holy one in Israel. So firstly, who's got to learn in the first place? 
Israel. He's going to make his holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. Starting point. Then, as a result of that, the nation shall know that I am the eternal, the holy one of Israel. Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the eternal God. This is the day which I have spoken, of which I have spoken. There is a day coming when all people will come to know that relationship. It's part of our job of being a watchman. That, of course, then demands that we ourselves, we as people, really know the eternal. Very important. It's also very important for us to appreciate this because this also becomes part of the new covenant relationship. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31. A scripture we probably know very well because it speaks of a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought the, took them out of the land, or took them by the hand, rather, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. And he talks about how he's going to make a covenant, whereby he will make a, a covenant with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And notice what the Eternal says next. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Eternal. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Everyone's going to learn. And they're going to have a new covenant placed within their heart and within their mind in a very powerful way. So how does this then relate to the Passover that we are about to touch, to keep on the evening of the 21st? I mentioned at the beginning that this lesson is included in the Passover. The last Passover that Jesus Christ kept with his disciples. It's interesting to see the number of times that Jesus made similar statements to the disciples as he sat at that Passover meal with them. During the following days of the unleavened bread, I'm sure these words of Jesus played very much on their minds. They tried to understand it. John 17, let's start at the end and work backwards. John 17 and literally towards the end of Christ's prayer to his Father. In verse 25, he said, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I have declared to them your name, and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Christ speaking to his father, 
absolute truism. The world has not known you. They didn't understand the concept of the Father. But Jesus Christ knew him intimately, very well, submitted himself totally to his will. This isn't the only occasion on which it's mentioned. If we go back to chapter 14, 14 and verse 5, here Jesus was sitting at the meal and talking about the preparation of a kingdom in the first few verses, that well-known scripture in my father's house of many offices, if it were not so, I would have told you, etc., and he goes to prepare a place for you. And so Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, the disciples knew Jesus Christ, He said, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And so, not content with that, Philip then pipes in and said, Lord, verse 8, show us the father and sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am of the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak. To you I do not speak on my own authority. The power that I have used to heal, to resurrect, to feed, all of the miracles were a manifestation of the power of the Father, the power to intervene in this physical, natural world and change things from chaos to godly order, to set things right. And these men had been with him for three and a half years and had seen that power being exercised day in and day out in their lives. He said, you know me. If you know me, if you truly know me, then you know my father also. Because you realize that the power that I have to change things. John 15, verses 18 through 21. Jesus Christ said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Hate is in the world for a reason. Because there is an enemy of God in charge. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I have one experience of that in my life. I was in Liberia in West Africa. And there was a very powerful radio station in Liberia between the airport and the city. And one of the times I was going uh, to the airport, I thought I'd stop in there and see if, well, there's any chance we could get the World Tomorrow program on the air there. 
And I was met by an American, and uh, he wanted to know who I was with, and I told him. And he showed me the door, and his foot was very close behind my gluteus maximus as I went through the door. <laughs> he had no interest in whatsoever in talking to me. And I asked him, well, what, why can't we do something about it? And his simple response was, because of who you are. And the words of Jesus Christ were abundantly clear. The world hates us. It hates what we stand for in no uncertain terms. And why will they persecute? He said, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do for my name's sake because they do not know who sent him, who sent me. They haven't come to develop that knowledge that you and I have had the ability to develop. In John chapter 17 and verse 3. And I sat in this audience a few times uh, earlier this year, and I think uh, two ministers read this sermon. And they both prefaced it by saying, this is a very important scripture. And I would like to have prefaced it as well by saying, this is a very important scripture. But they didn't tell us why it was a very important scripture. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do we know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent? Do we really understand that? Israel certainly knew the eternal better by the time they crossed the Red Sea on what we understand was the last day of unleavened bread. Yet the eternal never graces them with recognition of knowing him, only that they believed in him or they feared him. Israel ultimately suffered from the same problem as Pharaoh, cardiovascular disease. Moses, on the other hand, did come to know the eternal. And the song of Moses as recorded in Exodus chapter 15 is a manifestation of how well Moses came to know the eternal. The song of Moses is also recorded in the book of Revelation. Very important song, hymn to be sung. Moses did, and his song of Moses in Exodus 15 is testimony to that just as his name is included in the list of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. Yes, some Egyptians came to fear the eternal and they joined the Israelites as they went out. And it all soon wore off, didn't it? The mixed multitude who got to lusting and so forth in the wilderness. We've been offered a relationship based on a new heart, a heart transplant, that really is able to know and relate to our Creator, just as Moses was eventually able to do. Perhaps we need to ask ourselves, 
How much more fully have we come to understand and know the Father and His Son as a result of our preparation for the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread? How much more do we see their power being so essential to the solution of every problem I face? Or you face, or this world faces. It's not a change of government in terms of more men. The only solution to the human problems is the intervention of the Almighty God. Do we truly see that as being the solution to human problems? Do we see that as being the solution to our own problems? To be able to change us through the power, through their power, Are the Father and His Son more real to us and their power more real to us? Do we see their power, as I said, as the solutions to the problems that we face, the changes we need to make in our lives? It is only by getting to know them that we can truly develop the mind of God. And so you might say we come back to that favorite scripture of a certain person sitting in the front row, of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. How do we get to do that, that point? By coming to know in a very powerful way. It's only by getting to know them that we can develop the mind of God. It's only by getting to know them in a detailed manner that we can see what is really sin in our lives. What is contrary to them? What is, you might say, the chaos in our life that needs to be brought under control of the will of God? It's only through that that we can see what can separate us from our relationship with the Father and His Son. And so as we keep the Passover this year, brethren, consider this. John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Do you have that promise of eternal life within your heart, within your mind? Does it motivate you in terms of the work that we have to do as a church as well? Those are questions we need to ask ourselves as we keep the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread.